Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we explore the life and times of some of history's most influential people, such as inventors, businessmen, and entrepreneurs. All of these individuals have had a lasting impact on the world that we live in today. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob, and in this series, we discuss Andrew Carnegie. Also, we post once a week on Tuesdays. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. Now let's jump into this series, Andrew Carnegie. Well, good afternoon, Jeremiah. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. This fine Friday evening in July where it is 91 degrees Fahrenheit, mostly cloudy. Ooh, nice. It was, hey, at least it's not like it was uh, in the beginning of the week. It's, I feel like it's getting like a 120 degrees with a I don't know, it felt chance pretty, of hell. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's get away from the science lesson and go to our fourth episode. And final. And final. Installment. Epi- Episode, installment of the Carnegie series. Saga, whatever you want to use. I don't know. I'll just use a different word every time you use a word. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know we're going into the the J.P. Morgan merger type deal and maybe some of his philanthropic Carnegie, right? Carnegie. Right. If we want to bring this around to the first episode. Exactly. So what are we talking about today? I know we're wrapping up Carnegie, but philanthropic, what he, he gave away his money later in life. So yes. let's, uh, let's roll into yes. it. So why don't you start us off with his deal with the Mr. J.P. Morgan. Okay. So as we hinted about in our last episode, in 1901, approximately March 2nd, 1901, U.S. Steel was officially formed and was the first billion dollar company, which was estimated at 1.4 U.S. billion dollars. A lot of money there. This was a merger that J.P. Morgan bought out Carnegie's steel company. And we also had mentioned this in the Rockefeller series, just to throw this in there, that Rockefeller was a minor part of this deal because he owned a large uh, iron deposit as well. So just a fun fact there. And this, at this particular time, it made Carnegie in 1901 the richest man in the world. Wow. That is a richest man in the world? Richest man in the world at that specific time. Well, you got to think this was before the uh, the split up of Standard Oil, so Rockefeller hadn't made it there. It made Rockefeller extremely rich, well, uh, even more rich, but this made Carnegie the richest man in the world. And fascinating enough, as uh, Rob and I discovered when reading about Carnegie, he received, what was it, $250 million in bonds. And it was so many bonds, they had to build a special safe room in the when in you house. To, when you had to build another vault just to keep your your bonds that's significantly rich that's like mr or mcscrooge jumping in the pile of gold and swimming in it you know yeah slight mishap of the numbers because we know a few million here and there you know really affected him it was 230 million nearly 230 million worth of bonds my bad. I was off by twenty million, but I don't think Carnegie's gonna be upset about that. No. Well, so, he's dead, so I don't know. Yeah, that's true. So, something to fa- to really think about in the U.S. Steel is two things. Well, there's more than two things, but two things off the top of my head is at the time in 1901, 1.4 billion dollars, which was the estimated worth of this company, was four percent of the U.S. GDP. Four percent. And U.S. Steel is still in operation today. Yep, they sure are. In fact, I'm sure when our last president 
signed in tariffs on imported steel that they made a tidy sum with that too. Which brings us also back to previous episodes talking about Carnegie and how he built his fortune through steel. The tariffs were a significant portion. I wouldn't say the whole sum, but a significant portion to prevent British steel from undercutting them in the U.S. market. Right. Well, I mean, sometimes, you know, not to get political, but tariffs sometimes can help or hurt industries, especially when they need it the most. But I would think that they kind of saved him, saved his bacon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. I mean, I think he got to the point where he was so big that tariffs became a hindrance because he owned so much. Of course, by the time U.S. Steel was created, this was Carnegie's somewhat official retirement he really talked we we talked about that as well previously that he always talked about retiring early and he never did he finally retired early well he retired at 65 ironically so not early poor wording there and then he devoted his time to philanthropic works primarily libraries and education we had mentioned earlier that he was a very strong proponent of libraries. This is where he garnered most of his education in his early years after school, in between work. He believed that through libraries and self-teaching, anyone could rise out of poverty and rise up to an occasion to excel if just giving access to that information. I think that he would be very excited to hear that you can do all of that and more with the internet these days. It's basically a giant library that has more information than you could ever dream of knowing. Yeah, can you imagine someone having the drive to just to go to a library, library and searching, and how to do stuff that not a lot of people his age at the time knew how to do, and just make it happen? Like he's his thirst for knowledge was was probably way more than anyone even remotely at that time, because yeah. you can see kind of where he went with it. Like he didn't, I mean he he had some good opportunities, but not many people would take those opportunities like he did yeah i mean it's it's a it's a very very strong contrast i mean we have to imagine that humanity and life cycle is very cyclical and so yeah we didn't have tv and internet and radio didn't come around until you know after the 19th century really but i believe that people still found ways to quote-unquote waste their time or spend their time outside of laboring once the ability to do so was there for the longest time of humanity you had to pretty much work to survive that's what that's what living was you work to survive unless you're royalty you come to more of an industrialized age now people have extra time they have more leisure time you spend that doing what well if you don't have a lot of money what do you spend that time doing I think Carnegie spent his time well as a, a, a famous moniker that people use, you know, spend your time productively. To get back on track, we move on from the U.S. Steel formation, which made Carnegie the richest man and talked about his massive amount of bonds, which were 50-year gold bonds. Moving on to his philanthropic works, which I think is the real focus of this episode, what he did with all that money, his purpose for garnering all that wealth and uh, you know his his death yeah i think talking about the his um philanthropic adventures are pretty important but let's let's take a quick step back just to see where u.s like his u.s still kind of went in his retirement just so we don't breeze past that real quick but if you can just enlighten us for just a minute on where that went and then we'll 
go in and see what he did with all his money. So the formation of U.S. Steel, like I said, was in March of 1901. The growth of U.S. Steel and its subsidiaries in the South particularly was dependent on cheap of la- like cheap labor. They exploited convicts, apparently, in the South, which is very fascinating to hear about. And the company could obtain cheap labor at a fraction of the rate of northern labor. So you're saying the South exploited a group of people for cheap labor. That's U- U.S. Steel exploited the uneducated population of the South, primarily like the... the convicts. And- the, the convicts of the South and North, as well as the poor black communities of the South. Well, that's not historic at all. That's a little oh, yeah. oh, the irony there. Right. This, I think, also kind of came about around those discriminatory laws that were passed in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, sadly, after Reconstruction. So that is a sad part of history right there. And, and so looking more into this, the U.S. still had agreements with more than 20 counties in Alabama alone to obtain the labor of its prisoners, often paying locals $9 a month for workers who would be forced into their mines through a system of convict leasing. Now, that took a turn that I was not expecting. All right, I think this is a like this is a good segue to talk about like unfair labor practices if we want to. Go for it. Go for it. All right, so you can there's a lot to talk about here. But you know, we we try to paint all of our we're going to try to paint all of our historic figures that we talk about in more of a even light, like Rockefeller. You know, he has some good, some bad. Carnegie has some good, some bad. But it, now, this was after Carnegie said sold out. This is just right, U.S. Right. Steel and the and the powers that be. Right, but to use to use a company that was started, as, you know, as someone's main source of legacy income in, in to to gain more wealth than anyone had at the time and kind of use forced labor, if you will, a type of slavery after the reconstruction. That's, that's pretty significant. And what you would consider to be very, uh, very negative. So anyway, um, negative connotation to his legacy. And if you look at how that was, how that evolved into, you know, your memes or your, tropes of you know chain gangs working for companies or making license plates out of steel for free it's you kind of see where that comes from and yeah so i mean i don't mean to i want to intersect right there to because you bring up states using laborers to to produce license plates at this time there were actually many states that had similar practices i think it was eight southern states had similar practices to this and that and that states and many companies, as well as farmers, took advantage of this. And I mean, U.S. Steel had continued this practice until the 1920s. Wow. Yeah. The 1920s. So you had chain gangs working in mines and factories for pennies on the dollar trying to bolster the finances of these different companies, especially U.S. Steel, apparently. So this, I think this would be a good time just for a, a slight discussion, like how you feel about that. Because, I mean, it, it was a different time then, I get... And if you were a prisoner, you had to be going to jail for something significant. It wasn't like a like you have now, where you can get charged for drugs, and you you know you're in there for a couple months. Off of that, 
While some individuals were guilty of a crime, they did not receive payment or recognition for their work. Many died from abuse, malnutrition, and dire working and living conditions. This practice of convict leasing was fairly ubiquitous. So, convict leasing. That is a... That's such a terrible thing. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, going to... Like, well, that just brings... That just begs the question, like, how many people were wrongly convicted to work for different companies for no money? Yeah, it sounds like something we should probably dive into on a... Hint, hint, bonus episode. Perhaps. I think that'd be a good one. Very, uh, I think that's a sharp turn from what we normally talk about here. But hey, it was involved in U.S. Steel and and we're primarily focused on the early creation and endeavors of U.S. Steel. I'm not going to go through the entire history up to today, but I think that is fascinating. Also, you know, segueing off of the poor labor choices of U.S. Steel. So it was known on Wall Street as the corporation Purely because of its size. It wasn't particularly efficient and it wasn't particularly creative during its heyday. And in 1901, it controlled two-thirds of steel production. And through Pittsburgh Steamship Company, developed the largest commercial fleet on the Great Lakes. But due to heavy debts on the company's formation... Okay, so due to heavy debts on the company's formation, that is why Carnegie insisted on being paid in gold bonds... Rather than stock, because the gold bonds, obviously at this time, are based on gold. Right. So the value of them dipping sharply or very suddenly were very, very, very low. The same is true today as right. uh, many of and you. And if you have if you have gold bonds, I mean, you're you're it's more. It's kind of like safe. Yeah. yeah, you're more protected against you know what might happen in the future, like a Great Depression. Twenty years in the future. Right. No, 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 no. It's not even. T- well, yeah, yeah, twenty years at this point. Less than, but still. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of 10 years, a decade before after Carnegie's death. Bum, so. bum, bum. Okay, so. So after, the, after he sold he, out. He sold out. He retired. He was not a part of this anymore. He just kind of cashed out and was like, I'm done. Now he focused on giving away his money. Let's see what he did. So we talked about this before. The first library he ever installed instituted was in Dunfermline, which was his hometown. Later on, he incorporated many libraries and his largest, well, his, I guess, primary stipulation was he would give a sum of money and the city would match it for the grounds operation and maintenance of that library. To give a few examples, he gave, in 1885, he gave 500000 to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a public library. In 1886, he gave 250000 to Allegheny City in Pennsylvania for a music hall and library. And 250000 to Edinburgh for a free library. So you can kind of see that in this time period, he was mainly operating in the quarter to half a million dollars. He would invest later on in eventually funding 3,000 libraries roughly, and in total, located in 47 states, also including Canada, Ireland, Australia, Britain, New Zealand, South Africa, the West Indies, and Fiji. And he also donated 50,000 British pounds to help set up the University of Birmingham in 1899. Wow. So he was, he kind of wanted to help afford education or lack, you know, education that he, he got through the libraries to other people. He kind of wanted to give them the option and the opportunity to do that too. Yeah, he was very, very strong about that. And moving forward on that front, 
So he instituted the Carnegie Institute, which provided research for American colleges and universities in 1905. He instituted the Carnegie Teachers Pension Fund, which he endowed with $10 million, which is no small sum in 1905. Carnegie also was a very strong proponent of peace, as we talked about before, in pacifism. He petitioned many presidents about garnering a treaty between the U.S., Britain, and Germany, which this is all prior to World War One. In the time, this was obviously very public, and so they saw tensions, Carnegie being one of the wealthiest men in America, and he was like, I don't want this to happen. He was very hard-nosed in this, and he befriended Roosevelt, as we talked about, and he eventually befriended Taft, which was after Roosevelt. I think he persuaded a lot of people, but he he didn't get what he wanted. I mean, obviously, World War One did happen. Of course, no one knew that at the time. No one knew that was going to happen. It was just Germany was building up a lot, a large military. They were trying to come to terms. Carnegie had a bunch of diplomats and whatnot in Britain that was trying to sell them on a treaty that the U.S. Congress has not even had not even approved of, which was kind of a poor taste, but it's kind of what Taft and Roosevelt didn't really care for him at times. Anyway, bringing that forward, Carnegie established the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and also builds the Central American Court of Justice in Costa Rica, which ended up being destroyed by an earthquake later that year. It's tragic. Yeah, very tragic. Well, I mean, you know... The life and the life and times of Carnegie has been one roller coaster after another, hasn't it? Tumultuous, yeah, as one would say. It, it's fascinating. After he stepped out of the steel industry, I'm sure he was still involved to some degree. He really wanted to focus on giving away all of his money, and to a degree, he did just that. But that's what he focused on. So very much like Rockefeller, how he instituted a nonprofit to handle the giving away of funds and funding of of public and private projects. Carnegie eventually did the same thing once he realized he wasn't he was not going to be able to give away the rest of his fortune in his lifetime. So he's getting pretty old and realizes I can't really do this. So he established the Carnegie Corporation, which was founded in New York, with the leftovers money, about hundred twenty five million, that he wanted to be used to aid in colleges, universities, technical schools, and scientific research, very much what we saw previously, to encompass the entirety of his philanthropic works. In all, he has given away 90% of his fortune. Wow. 90% of his fortune. I mean, he still had a lot at the end of his into his life, but still, I mean, that's pretty significant. Imagine working all your life and you give 90% of your your money at retirement. Just give it away. We can't even fathom that right now because it takes every most people it takes everything they have for retirement just to live to the end of their days. Just imagine having enough to be like, I'll give it away. I'll start a library too. Yeah. A casual three thousand. <laughs> casual three thousand libraries. Let, you know what? Let's, In multiple countries. Several countries. Let's do a little math exercise. Let's say that he averaged five hundred thousand, okay, to establish three thousand libraries. Which probably more than that, but we can see a rough number between quarter and half million. You times that by 3000 Obviously, this was not the actual cost. But if he were to treat every library as he did the first few, we're looking at 
$1.5 billion. That is a lot of cheddar. A lot of cheddar. Let me back that down to maybe 250000 probably a little bit more accurate. Yeah, it'd be like one, maybe. $500, million, $500 million. Honestly, I don't even know how that's possible. So, yeah, no. Well, well in the 3000 it was probably some in the smaller villages and towns you just had a small library i'm sure yeah so i mean it would cost only like ten thousand dollars yeah i mean there's definitely instances where it was only you know maybe needless like to say he, he, i mean three thousand is pretty significant yes and many of them are still operational but a lot of them have closed down and most of them i believe closed down in the 70s and 80s sadly enough right. many of the buildings are still around but many of them as well hate to sound repetitive there have been torn down i wonder what caused that government intervention or privatization <laughs> or i don't think they so they're somewhat privatized because they i think they all had an endowment of some sorts to maintain it but it was it was a contract between the amount given and the amount that the city would maintain and operate it. And I think a lot of that come down to came down to city operations and funds. And I'm sure by that time, you have to think that inflation in the 80s and early 80s especially skyrocketed. So oh, right. some of these, though, like especially in larger cities like in New York. and I, th- I wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. I hope that you are enjoying it. Also... I would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen, and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pminespod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. in Pennsylvania they're still around so that's that's pretty awesome and moving moving further along in the Carnegie timeline because I know that we have taken a few different tracks off the beaten path in 1913 the palace of peace is dedicated the palace or temple of peace in the hog was financed by Carnegie and had its grand opening. And sadly, after all the petitioning, if I could learn how to speak, all the petitioning Carnegie did against war and the foreshadowing that we gave about World War I. In 1914, obviously, World War I begins, and at the time, Carnegie is in Scotland, and this will be the last time he's in Scotland he leaves Scotland once World War War I breaks out. And he leaves for the last time. And if you remember, and if you don't remember because you haven't listened to a previous episode, you should definitely go back and listen to the entire series of Carnegie so you get the whole story. He purchased an estate that is called Skybow. He loved him and his wife visit there often. They loved it very much. I can imagine that this is where he was staying. In 1916, he buys Shadowbrook Estate outside of Boston, Massachusetts. This is where he spends his final days before dying. Andrew Carnegie died on August 11th, 1919 in Lenox, Massachusetts at his Shadow Brook estate of pneumonia. He'd already given away $350 million, which if you only count inflation, inflation, would be $5.49 billion in 2021 today. And after his death, he gave away the last $30 million to foundations, charities, and pensioners. Pensioners. How do you say that, Rob? I can't. I believe it's pensioners. There you go. 
my my the ones who hold a pension. That thank you. And he was buried none other than at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Sleepy Hollow, New York. Maybe he is a headless horseman. I don't think so. But maybe. Maybe we can always hope. Yeah. Maybe throwing maybe. books at people, you know, tell them to read. Now that sounds like a very funny saga. I guess I guess if we want to draw some stuff from Carnegie's final life and I know we kind of went here and there, but I mean we can kind of do a what do we think about Carnegie overall? I mean Yeah, we, so so you want to head us off on that route. Yeah, like so we started as humble beginnings in Scotland, moved to America as a poor lad with a... A poor uh, immigrant. A poor immigrant with a father who didn't really care to advance himself. And Sounds a mother, similar. Yeah, exactly. And a mother who really knew how to make things work. Sounds again, similar again. Sounds similar. You know, these things are kind of... We're, we're kind of drawing similarities here. And, uh, you know, as, as he moves on in his career, advances, gets proper training, education in the work field, finds opportunities, get some good advice, you know, pretty much a don't invest unless you know insider trading or insider information, <laughs> which you'd call insider trading today. But hey, 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 it wasn't illegal back then. It wasn't illegal, yeah, it wasn't illegal back then. I mean, so, I can't say I wouldn't partake in such. I uh, mean, if you knew it, you'd be a fool not to, honestly. Okay, yes. Anyway, so as he's getting, you know, more on the job education, learning more about investing starting his different money making endeavors we kind of see it like we develop a personality of carnegie we're hard working someone who cares about people may have a few ideas as far as the labor union is concerned you know maybe he doesn't necessarily think everyone is the same skill level as they think they are or they were when back in back before this time you know we had artisans and people who were more skilled. And as you go into industrialization, you have more automated systems, automated systems where you don't require the skills. So naturally, consistency. You, yeah, consistency. You would, you would think that you wouldn't need to pay those people as much as the people before who were, uh, you know, they were required to make something really well, but I digress. As we go on, he kind of develops a personality of, Hey, I like to give away money. Or I want to think about other people instead of just gaining wealth. I think that's a very strong point because you see a lot of times the general idea that is passed around in society or among people and even biographers even. And I think this is distasteful personally that they kind of use this as a way to be like, oh, well, they used a bunch of unethical, immoral, shady business dealings and and tactics to garner all this wealth and which did happen but it did happen to some degree and then they turn around and they're like well I'm going to give away so much money because that justifies what I did before I don't think these people particularly the two people we've covered Carnegie and Rockefeller they did not garner this wealth and then feel bad about how they did it to give it away I do not believe that's why they did it I think that they had a knack for making money I don't think everything they did was perfect because no one is but I do think that they ended up helping a large number of people compared to the people that, quote-unquote, they hurt. And in some instances, I think it got skewed by who was telling the story. Like in Rockefeller's case, not to blend too much in Carnegie Saga, but in Rockefeller's case, there was a large portion of the oil refiners in Cleveland that we had talked about where they were screaming a foul of Rockefeller's you know, railroading. 
but that's mainly because they were excluded from the deal. If they were included, do you think those people would have been like, oh, this is unethical? Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're always going to have the squeaky wheel of the railroading. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so you can kind of see both sides, but if you get, if you have people that are really invested in making future generations wealthier in knowledge, give them the ability to grow, like, that, that's pretty significant. Now, not... Not you know paint Carnegie in too much of a bad light, but you know the uh, the whole labor leasing from the prison systems, the, uh, you know notwithstanding, which necessarily wasn't him. Yeah, he wasn't involved at that point. Right. That was U.S. Steel. Yeah, but you know, was he taking some money from him? What did he have a? I think uh, they so he required them to pay him out in total. So that's why it was in bonds. So he, I mean, well, I mean, you know, it was that, a straight buyout. In that case, you know, maybe we need to shed light on someone else in the future. Maybe a, like we talked about a bonus episode. Well, that bonus episode may be an entire series, but can't get too exciting yet. <laughs> okay, so continue. We're to from from where we left off on the summarization. Right. So as Carnegie's more invested into future generations and trying to build a legacy, you know, not just for his sake but others, we can kind of draw can like draw similarities between him and Rockefeller, how they really wanted to help others in their later life. Where Rockefeller was more interested in the medical field, advancing medical innovations, Carnegie was more interested in education and self-education and giving people opportunity. It's very fascinating. And and I think these people did something that I don't think a lot of people think of. So it's really easy to bypass the good that people do and focus on the bad. I mean, right. bad and, is always sensationable. You know, it's taboo. That's what you want to focus on. I'm not saying, but I th- I'm not saying that this wouldn't have happened, but I think it's very fascinating. Where would some of these places be if it wasn't that these people garnered this? Like what what if what if the people garnered some of the most wealthy fortunes of humanity, at least in the modern era, were people who were stingy? Right. I mean, this that's one question you have to ask is like even if Carnegie was someone who gained a lot of wealth you know, gave it away. Who else in his that was put in his situation? Like, if me or you were put in his situation, would we have done the same? Would we have given away ninety percent of our wealth by the end of our life? I don't know. Like, wouldn't it be cool to go to Italy, Spain, all those cool places, and burn our money as quickly as possible? I mean, that's that's my thought. I'm not saying he was a completely selfless person, but like, to give away ninety percent of your wealth, I mean, that's pretty selfless. I think I think it speaks volumes in terms of. You look at his personality, you look at his pursuits throughout his life, and he always thought education was important. He, so he didn't quite have the same route as Rockefeller. So we, we, you know, to draw back again to that, Rockefeller always gave a certain percentage of his money in tithing, whether to the church or to the people in need, and he maintained that and only grew it as he went as he got older. And Carnegie, I think, was very similar in that. I think he was also a little bit more public. So. Rockefeller was very reserved, you know, very private person. Rockefeller, or Carnegie, rather, enjoyed the spotlight. He did enjoy, I mean, as we, when we were reading about all the different trusts and institutions he created, Carnegie, the name, leads a bunch of those, so. Right, he, he, he was not a, he, he wasn't was, modest. Yeah, he did like to be remembered, but, I mean, I think this also comes back to the fact that he was poor. He also had a poor family history back in his hometown as we talked about, like his uncle and whatnot was a political outlier or outcast. I would say he spoke up against the popular opinion, spoke out against popular opinion. And because of that he was kind of ostracized from his local society, not a whole lot, but a little bit. And 
that rubbed off on him. And so, and he was also short in stature. His wife was taller. So I can only imagine that this was kind of that gotcha moment, you know, and, and to be fair, maybe not every single instance he suggested the name. Right. So you're saying he may have been just had a little life, you know, a little bit more personality. I feel like we've, right. we've been a little bit, you know, kind of strict learning how to talk on, on he shorter. May honored. Sh- he may have been shorter than most, but larger than life. <laughs> yeah. He, he definitely resembles Santa Claus. If you ever look at a, a, a older photo of him <laughs> with a, with a snow white beard, slightly balding, big round head with a rosy, rosy colored cheeks. I can only imagine because all the photos are in black and white. Right. But it's very fascinating. I mean, yeah. to draw this to an end on Andrew Carnegie, the steel, the steel king, the library connoisseur. Yeah. I believe this has been an exciting episode. Very, I think so, uh, too. I think it's been really good. I think it's also been a, a more interactive as we progress in this podcast of Prestigious Minds. Something we haven't talked about a whole lot since we started the series is how we're doing in terms of progression of the show, definitely trying to make this more interactive between Rob and I and the conversation. Cause we don't want it to sound like we're just reading you a book or a biography. That's not really a lot of fun. This is not a lecture. Necessarily. Exactly. It's more of a conversation yeah, between two amateur historians. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you can look at it as, as Rob and I enjoy these topics on a day-to-day basis of talking about all different kinds of things. And this is a particular one we thought would be fun to record and share it with all of you so saying that, you know, we are always open to suggestions. You can find us anywhere on social media at P Minds Pod. Not gonna go through a whole plug there, but Yeah, don't forget to like like, share, and subscribe. You know. <laughs> yeah. Give five stars every time. Yeah, yeah. Only if we were on YouTube, which we are not yet, but hopefully in the future. I guess streaming is ain't radio, but you know, very similar kind it's of cl- it's close. It's we can get. Inflection and personality is right. something we're really trying to get in there. But anyway, I've I digress. Before I've, before we go, don't forget to check out maybe some bonus episodes in the future, like we've hinted at multiple times. And by mean hint, we've pretty much told you. If you don't know we have a bonus episode yet, I can't help you. Right. So after this podcast, we're going to try to, after this saga, we're going to try to release bonus episodes. They may be here or there. They may be more in sequence, but we're going to play that by ear. Just have a little fun. Something a little more impromptu, a little more, just a more of a conversation and less of a straight topic. Yeah, to break up the flow a little bit, you know, maybe maybe you listen to it in depth and you find it very fascinating, or maybe you don't. I do not judge. It's perfectly fine. You know, everyone has their flavors. I think we'll also dive into other topics. I mean, obviously, the purpose of the podcast is to talk about a specific kind of history, particularly, you know, entrepreneurs, self-starters, business people, engineers, entrepreneurs, all these kinds of people, more of the modern era, so we're not going like prehistoric or, or <laughs> mid-century Englishmen or anything like that, or you know, Middle Egypt or anything like that. Something you know, that we can kind of grasp is historically, like go back a hundred or so. Something years. you can actually learn from in, in contrast, right? And I think that would be a you know a, a good way to say that we're trying to progress through the years as we go into the podcast and while we've painted Rockefeller and Carnegie in mostly a good light we try to maintain a little more even temper like we're going to show you the bad we're going to you know tell you the bad with the good but sometimes there's going to be a little more bad than good perhaps in the next series we can't tell you that is yet no no but I mean hint 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 railroads yeah there's many there's many railroad barons they're never going to guess this yeah 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 he may have built a lot of shipping uh, lines he built he built them well well, no his family built many many houses 
Right. And fun fact, they're not rich today. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I don't know why I did whoop, whoop there, but yeah. they, they don't have any money today, if that tells you how they spent their socialist. fortune. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we'll not keep you waiting, and we'll see you next. on the next episode of Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds. <laughs>